Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here with you this morning. If you're new with us, as Don mentioned, I'm Chad McCartney. I'm one of the pastors here. I oversee the discipleship and groups ministry, so would love to help you get connected. If you're new here, uh, we're moving into a season where a lot of our groups are going to be promoted over the next few months. You heard about our re-engage ministry uh, that's kicking off right now. Next month, a lot of our groups that meet all over the city and here will be kicking off as well, so uh, be prepared. It's a great opportunity and season for you to get connected into a smaller community here at our church. If you're new as well, we're in the midst of a series titled The Way of Love, and we've been talking about love and different aspects of it through this series. Uh, Normally, just a little different today, normally we would have our announcements at the end and and the passages that we've been dealing with in 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage, and 1 John 4 connected some of those key principles. Today I'm talking about love and forgiveness, which isn't in those passages, but is very much connected. And so I want to take some time to connect those. It's more topical. I'm going to be jumping all over the place in terms of passages today. So there's not one single passage. This is more of a theology, you could say, of love and forgiveness. All the passages will come up on the screen. You can try to keep up in your Bibles if you want, but I would suggest you just maybe jot down the verses and pay attention here and follow it as we go through uh, the message today. So uh, we're going to not do announcements at the end. We're going to have a very personal uh, time to reflect and respond to what we're doing. And so our closing will be a little bit different today uh, to allow space to really do the work of what we want to walk away with today. So uh, to be real open with you, uh, I've been shocked, uh, challenged, and continually on a journey of applying these principles of love and forgiveness uh, throughout my many years of being in ministry and even being a Christian. Uh, In fact, a significant uh, part of the reason why I chose not to be a a senior pastor or pursue another senior pastor role after my previous 14 years serving on the border in Laredo is because we as a family and I personally needed some space to kind of process and heal and work through some of the things that we faced uh, during those years in ministry. Uh, And this was a, a better way to do that. Love and forgiveness are not sentimental Uh, They're not like wishy-washy concepts. They're very real. They're two of the richest, deepest, and most challenging concepts that you'll ever walk into in your life. Uh, Some of the absolute greatest joys, sweetest people, and most life-transforming experiences we experienced took place during our years in Laredo. But some of the deepest pains, hardest seasons, and most gut-wrenching circumstances we have ever faced also took place during that time. And I'd be lying if I said it was easy to forgive and move forward from some events and people. I didn't say we didn't. I'm saying I'd be lying if I said it was easy to do that. I'd also be lying if I said I'd never second-guessed our decision to take our family Uh, into a context that at times would put tremendous pressure on our family, on our kids, and leave some lasting wounds on all of us. And I'd be lying as well if I believed that all the hurt was the result of others and circumstances and not 
because of how I poorly responded to some of these situations. Love and forgiveness is not a sentimental topic. It's much deeper, much richer, and much more to it than you could ever imagine. I know my experience is not unique. In fact, I believe we could spend the rest of the day here hearing how many of you, if not most of you, have walked through similar things, and some of you are still stuck in them. In fact, some of you may think you'll never get through them. Others of you are here, and, and, and you think if a certain person doesn't change, you'll never feel differently about them. And still others of you are on a crusade to make sure that what happened to you will never happen to anyone else. You see, one of the struggles is most of us Christians have partial truths or secular views about forgiveness. And as a result, we get stuck in these spots that we never seem to move past. See, without a proper roadmap, you'll never complete the journey. And so today my hope, my heart for you is to help you get a picture of what that journey looks like, what the Bible teaches us about forgiveness and what God has done for you and I in the midst of that. So here's three simple questions I hope to help us understand as we walk through these passages today. The first one is, how are love and forgiveness connected? It is very important that we see them together. We tend to divide God up and deconstruct him into these different traits of that, and we don't see that he's all of these at all the time, at every moment. So first we need to understand how do love and forgiveness fit together? The second thing we're going to see is what does loving forgiveness actually look like? What does loving forgiveness actually look like? And then lastly, who do I need to forgive? When the rubber hits the road, that's the ultimate question. Who do I need to forgive? So if you have your Bible with you, the first spot we're going to look at is in 1 John chapter 4. We started with this passage in the first week of this series, and we want to look at how love and forgiveness are connected. So let me give you the, the statement here. Here's the principle. I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm going to show you why I believe this is true. Okay? So the first principle on, on how our love and forgiveness connected is forgiveness is the greatest expression of the love of God. Forgiveness is the greatest expression of the love of God. That's what 1 John shows us in this passage. Follow with me in 1 John 4, uh, 9 and 10. He defines it and reveals it to this and this. God's love was revealed among us in this way. Here's how God revealed his love. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now that's a general big picture concept, but we know that we can live through him and what he sent him for was for the forgiveness of our sins, for him to be our savior. And he goes on to define that in verse 10. He says, love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. How did he love us? He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, the satisfactory substitute 
for you and me, for our sins. So love and forgiveness are deeply intertwined. You can't disconnect them. In fact, as I was looking at this, I saw several different places. These things connect very much so in verses when it's describing who God is and what he does. Numbers 14, 19 is one of them where Moses is talking to God and he says, please pardon the iniquity or the sins of this people in keeping with the greatness of your faithful love. Moses knows he connects God's willingness to forgive, his character trait of forgiveness with his faithful love with who he is. He says, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. Psalm 86, as we heard even in our worship time, has this phrase, for you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive. And then he explains that by saying, you're abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. You can see this throughout the scriptures. Forgiveness and love are connected You see, forgiveness or sacrifice is the ultimate measure of love. Sure, we can show love in other ways, but the ultimate measure of love is forgiveness. It's a sacrifice. It's doing something for someone that they don't deserve. See, we love in lots of ways people that are are worthy of our love. Hey, I like being around them. They're fun. They're neat. They're exciting. They're my family. I just want to hang out with them. So I'm going to get them gifts. I'm going to do things for them. And sure, that's love as well, but that's not nearly as costly a love as a love that forgives, a love that lays down its life for others. Jesus said it this way. He said, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Paul went on to explain this, and Paul, in his logic, kind of works it down and gets into our heads a little bit about this whole idea of laying down his life. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, he says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Then he goes on to explain that. Rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. Like, lots of people have laid down their lives for others. I mean, it's rare, but people have done it. But it's always for the sake of someone whom they care about. But that's not what God did in the sense of the scenario that we are in. It says right here, but God, he contrasts our kind of sacrificial love and how we might lay down our lives with how God does. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. How would you demonstrate the costliness of your love? Because love is not truly measured nor tested when things are easy and good. Anyone can hang around. Jesus says, even sinners do nice things to those who do nice things to them. That doesn't reveal anything about us. What does is what we do with our enemies. How would you measure the costliness of one's love? By the level of sacrifice. In particular, undeserved sacrifice. And that's what forgiveness is. It's offering to someone something that they don't deserve, that cannot be earned. Forgiveness, second thing you're going to see is forgiveness received results in a deep love. God knows this. He reveals this, and he wants to 
develop this in us. And when you receive forgiveness, when you truly receive forgiveness, it results in an incredibly deep love, a love that no other act of love can spur in a person. And, and Jesus talks about this with the sinful woman that came to him when he was at dinner uh, at Simon's place, if you remember. And he says this in Luke 7, uh, 47, to make this connection as well. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loves much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, Jesus' point, if you read that story, is not that, hey, if you just have a few sins or you didn't live that bad of a life, you know, you're not capable of loving little. He's using an analogy that if at that point the Pharisees would have captured it, hey, much love, much forgiveness, little love, little forgiveness. But what happened in that scenario with Jesus at that dinner is Simon showed no love at all. He showed zero hospitality. All the common basic things that you would do to show love to a guest in his home, not Not one of those things did he do for Jesus. So Jesus was using a little pattern to say high love, high forgiveness, little love, little forgiveness. But what about when there's no love? He was revealing to Simon that he'd never really been forgiven. He didn't think he needed to be forgiven. Because there's only only two types of people in the world. All of us are sinners, incredible sinners that need incredible amounts of forgiveness regardless of what we've done. And you've either been forgiven in that realm and it's blown you away and rocked how you see the world forever or you haven't received it and you think you're good enough either rejecting God or think your own way is going to be good enough. That's it. There's no, well, I grew up in a Christian home, so yeah, I've been forgiven a little bit, but those people out there, man, they really need forgiveness. Man, that gap, whatever it might be, maybe is like this, but our gap to God is an infinite gap. In his eyes, it all looks the same. Love and forgiveness, they cannot be disconnected. So what does loving forgiveness look like then? If we know we're connected, what does it look like when these things are are expressed together? What is loving forgiveness? I want to stop and share a little bit of models in our culture of what it's not. Okay, and I want to give credit to Tim Keller. If you've ever read Tim Keller, he has a book out on the concept of forgiveness, and he talks about this. That's where I'm pulling these little concepts for as he insightfully talks about how our culture often views forgiveness. And here's two common models that are out there. One of them is kind of this therapeutic forgiveness. It's what's often in our secular counseling world, and it's me-centered. It's all about me. Forgiveness is primarily about me healing and me getting better. Uh, And there's half-truths to that. All these things have a little bit of biblical truth because forgiveness does benefit you when you do it, but it's not all about you. It is not about you at all in the the primary aspect. It's about the offender. Go to God and say, hey, God, that, that forgiveness you gave to us is all about you. Like, we didn't really benefit from it. It was really about you. That mocks what God offered. God's forgiveness is so much about what he has offered us. We are the primary benefiters in forgiveness, the offenders being forgiven. But our world will often say, hey, don't worry about them. You just forgive yourself or you do all this inside stuff. And there's partial truths we'll see to that, but it's incomplete. That's an incomplete model 
that will never bring about the community that God desires. The second is this non, or as a, as a merited transactional forgiveness, Keller says is a phrase. Merited, meaning it's deserved or it's earned, transactional. There's some transaction. You have to offer me something back before I forgive. And there's a lot of that in the, the justice and racial kind of things that are going on right now. It's just very much until the forgiven people perform at a certain level, until groups or anyone that we offend performs to a certain level, I will never offer forgiveness. It's earned. It's merited by what they do. And again, that's an, an incomplete. There's some healthy truths within it. It's just not complete. It's all about the offender meeting some standard. And when that's done, it's never true forgiveness. It's very conditional, unlike what God has offered us. Uh, I want to share from a great songwriter and theologian uh, on this topic that helps us maybe understand this, Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'm going to need your guys' help over here, okay? You know what I'm doing. I'm going to ask you to sing along here. Not sing along, but I need you to sing back the rest of this because I know some of you will know this. But she has a song out titled, Mean, and it says this, one day I'll be living in a big old city and, come on, all you're ever going to be is mean, yes. That was a little lame. Come on, we'll try it again. Let's try it again. One day I'll be big enough so you can't hit me and all, all you're ever going to be is mean. Taylor Swift, phenomenal songwriter. I have two daughters living in the house, so I... I'm not a Swifty, but I hear it all the time. But, but this is what's out there in our culture. Listen to what she's saying. She was insulted by a critic at one point, rightly so, but how do we, how do we address it? Hey, one day I'm going to move past this. All this work I've done, I'm going to move past it. I've, I've dealt with it here, and I'm going to be living in this big old city. My life is going to change. I can get past this, but all you're ever going to be is mean. One day I'll be too big for you to hit me, but all you're ever going to be is mean. See, that's what happens when forgiveness overly focuses on me, when we remove the love from it. Because you and I were the mean person with God. And what if God said, hey, one day I'm going to be here in heaven, I'm going to be big enough, you're never going to be able to touch me. And all you're ever going to be is a bunch of worthless sinners. That's the views of our culture. That's one of the views, and it's what we're inundated with over and over again. Thomas Watson, uh, 17th century Puritan preacher and, and writer, says this about forgiveness in terms of loving forgiveness. He says, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies harm but wish them well, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. Then we've truly forgiven. Then we've truly done the work in our hearts to be prepared for the transformation that we hope for in our world. So here's a couple things about what loving forgiveness looks like. First is this. Loving forgiveness begins with the one who is forgiven. Loving forgiveness begins with the one who is forgiven. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says this. 
Jesus says this. He says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. Look at what he says. If you have anything against anyone, forgive him. It does start here. It does always starts with you. And he says, actually, after this, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. That's a little troubling. We're going to talk about that. But here's some of the points on this. Never have an excuse to withhold forgiveness. There's never an excuse to do that. Well, they're this, or they're, they're not going to do that. Blah, blah, blah. There's never an excuse for you not to start the process of forgiveness in your own heart. It shouldn't stay there but it must start there. Jesus also says in Matthew 18, one of these passages going on the second part of it that's so challenging, he says, this is the story of the the unmerciful servant, as you know, who's been forgiven an infinite debt by a king and then goes out and demands a teeny tiny debt from someone else. This is how Jesus ends that. Very troubling unless we understand the importance of forgiveness and love. He says, then after, after he had summoned him, so this king summons him after he hears that he doesn't forgive someone else. His master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. That's a little troubling just in that, but not nearly as troubling as the next thing that Jesus says. And I hope this troubles you, because it should. So also, my heavenly Father will do to you unless unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Now, I read a whole lot of different commentators dancing around how to make sense of this. And there are some things you got to consider when making sense of it. But I think what happens is we too quickly try to dismiss the power of Jesus' statement to excuse ourselves from what we know is true about ourselves. Let me just ask you this. Do you think Jesus takes forgiveness seriously? Do you think he would just throw out a statement like this whimsically? See, I think what he's saying, the reason this is so shocking is that apart from never having an excuse to withhold forgiveness, we should never forget that your relationship with God is revealed by your willingness to forgive others. Your relationship with God It's not about how much knowledge you have in your head. It's not about how many services you go to, how much you give. It's best revealed by your willingness to forgive others from the heart. See, this teaching of Jesus is meant to startle us. Because to refuse to forgive others implies that you have never truly been forgiven by God yourself. Maybe you've allowed him to excuse it or you've let yourself off the hook, but you haven't received true forgiveness. See, it makes a mockery of God's greatest and infinite act of love for you when you refuse to do to others 
in an infinitely smaller way what has been unbelievably and sacrificially done for you. Tim Keller makes this statement about that passage. He said, again, we should remember that this cannot mean that God's forgiveness is merited or earned by ours. Rather, it means that to be unforgiving reveals that you have failed to understand and accept God's unmerited grace yourself. Perhaps you thought that your contrition and reparations before God earned his favor. You may have made your remorse and shame into some kind of good work that you thought put you and God in your debt. The telltale sign that you have done something like this, rather than actually receiving God's unmerited forgiveness and mercy, is the inability to forgive others. Loving forgiveness begins with the one who is forgiven. Second thing we see in Scripture is that loving forgiveness seeks the best for both parties whenever that's possible. Loving forgiveness does start here. It it starts in our hearts, and it takes an incredible work to begin there, but it never stops there. It always seeks the best for both parties whenever that's possible. We see this in in uh, chapter 17 of Luke, Luke's gospel, when Jesus says this. He says, be on your guard. He's telling us, be aware, disciples, followers of Jesus, If your brother sins, or sister, it's talking about another Christian, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Look closely at what's happening here. This is not just a therapeutic, hey, I'm just going to deal with this in my heart. Jesus' first command is if someone sins against you, they harm you, you go and rebuke them. You lovingly correct the behavior and make them aware of what happened. You don't just deal with it in your heart. You go to that person and you share that with them giving them the opportunity to ask for forgiveness. That's how transformation happens. That's the step we often leave out as Christians, or if we do it, we come with hand grenades and guns and we just blow them out of the water and feel better about that. Man, justice has finally been done, you know, for what happened to me. And they always get way more justice than the the crime often merits, correct? When we come like that. See, what we learn from this passage is that the responsibility to confront and to forgive are equally laid on us as Christians. That's true forgiveness. Most of us are prone to one or the other, but both are needed for true forgiveness. You see, seeking the best for all parties is the essence of Christian justice. This is where justice, true justice, comes in. Injustice is grieve God and everything that we love about him. Injustices mar our community. They mar our society. They mar us and they mar other people. And only when we truly forgive and we do that by this process do we ever have what true justice brings about. Because seeking justice speaks the truth in love and does not even shield people from the consequences of their sin. It's not throwing consequences for 
revenge, it's bringing natural consequences for the loving transformation of a person. See, that's one of the other things. That, there's too many things, but, but, but forgiveness does not mean the removal of all consequences. That's just a wrong thought on Christians. It can at times, but it doesn't demand that. Like, think of the, the very first sin and forgiveness in the Bible in, in Genesis 3 in the fall. God forgave Adam and Eve. He covered them, but the world has never been the same ever since. The consequences of that action has rippled through society forever. To say that forgiveness just removes all consequences is simply not biblical. But it brings consequences that are for the good of everyone. It brings restoration that doesn't just harm the one who is offended. It helps them become the man or woman that God designed them to become. They're transformational in nature, not revengeful in nature. That's loving forgiveness. Forgiveness is also not the immediate restoration of trust. Those are two different things. Trust takes time. Forgiveness happens in the moment that you offer it. Even though the process may continue. Last thing, loving forgiveness has no limits. It has no limits. This is what Jesus says in there. If he comes to you seven times in a day and comes back to you say, I repent, you must forgive him seven times. He's not giving us a number there. Just as when he said this to Peter in Matthew's gospel, and, and Peter said, should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus said, you should forgive him 70 times seven times. Like, he's just saying, every single time. There's no limits on forgiveness. There's not like, hey, this is the 10th time you've done this. I'm done with that. I'm not offering it anymore. That may affect your trust and your relationship in some ways with them, but it doesn't affect your willingness to forgive. And we see from this passage, whatever this repentance is, it's something that could happen seven times in one day. It's not this long, drawn-out self-flagellation and reparations that have to take care of for months. Once I see that in you for months, once a year goes by, then I'll forgive you. That's not what he's saying. Forgiveness happens the moment you recognize that you've been forgiven infinitely more than you'll ever have to forgive. That happens in your heart. It changes your heart towards that person and gets past the offense of their offending and sees them as someone whom God is and wants to transform just like you. See, we can't make any one of these teachings an absolute in isolation of the other. God understands that including all teachings on this subject are important. In fact, most of the heresies in Christian history happened because we take one truth out of context. And it's why I needed to jump around and show what does the Bible teach as a whole on forgiveness? Not just one place. We can make the Bible say anything we want. Like I said, every heresy that's ever come into the church has been coming from the Bible. People that misuse this or take one part and don't see the whole of everything that's taught about it. That's why this book, that's why God is so incredible because even in our cultures with all the knowledge we think we have and as smart as we are, we still can't figure out the best models of forgiveness. We're still incomplete. This book was written thousands of years ago 
And it's so much more complex, so much more beautiful, so much more complete in this area that even our modern psychology and counseling cannot come up with a better model. Because no one knows our hearts better than the one who created us. Two important truths speak to us on this topic. Christian forgiveness is never individualistic. This is just putting it together. It's never individualistic by itself. Do you need to heal in your heart first in forgiveness? Absolutely. But if it stops right there, then you're doing something, but you're not doing Christian forgiveness. Nor is forgiveness all about getting everyone else to do what you feel they need to do before you offer it. Nor does Christian forgiveness excuse someone from needing to change. In fact, Christian forgiveness never undermines the pursuit of justice. It promotes it. All it does is changes the attitude of the one who's promoting justice so that when you bring proper consequences into a situation, you aren't doing it from a vengeful heart that's seeking revenge or seeking to harm them. You're coming at them with a heart that says, I love you so much that these consequences are necessary to transform you. I remember... Uh, raising my kids, having to, to apply the hand of understanding or the hand of knowledge to the seat of understanding. You understand what I'm saying? And as dads often say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Discipline, even the Bible says that. Hebrews 12:6, God disciplines those sons and daughters whom he loves. But he does it in a way that's for our good, not to harm us or be vengeful towards us. So who do I need to forgive? See, what I've shared was actually the easiest part of this message. Any one of you in this room could have put these facts together and shared the facts of forgiveness. But what we need to do next may be incredibly painful and freeing all at the same time. See, some of you are here, maybe all of you in some way, have a name or two or many whom you, knew, you know, you know this, you're harboring unforgiveness towards. You have bitterness towards. Every time you think of them, it's rarely positive thoughts. Those same emotions come stirring up. And I'm not saying you can't have angry emotions against a wrong that was done. But when they continually come up towards a person when you think of them, then you've failed to do some of the work that God has called us to do in this area. So it may be a, a family member. It may be a spouse who's deeply hurt you. Maybe a parent or someone that's betrayed you or even abused you. It could be a, a friend or a coworker. And heaven forbid, it may be someone in your church. I've heard that can happen. The health of your very soul is on the line. It's what Jesus is saying in this passage. No matter how you interpret that, you say, oh, you can't lose your salvation. Okay, you can't. 
I agree. But if he's throwing someone to a jail, he's saying, you're going to be tortured if you don't forgive. Whatever that is, it could just be what you're experiencing right now. It could be you harboring it is the very opportunity that's going to torture your soul. In fact, I think when you harbor unforgiveness, you give the devil a foothold, the Bible says, and he has a window into your heart, and he will take every opportunity he has to crush your heart and your faith until it seems like there's absolutely nothing left. Church, the statistics say that 30% of pastors leave the ministry in the first three years. I believe the majority of that is due to this issue, a struggle to know how to handle all the hurts that will often come into your life. And it's not because people hurt you. It's because we don't know how to respond in a biblical way. spiritual cancer is eating at your heart and it will not stop until you apply the only cure to fix it. Forgiveness. The cross is is our full picture of forgiveness. Both justice and compassionate pardon come into this one incredible event. No one, no one was more unjustly victimized in our world than Jesus. Please let that sit, because we live in a victimized society. We love to play that card, and I'm not saying there aren't victims. There certainly are, and justice needs to come, but that never gives us an excuse to not do the work that God's called us to do as Christians. Jesus was the most unjustly victimized person to ever walk this earth. And yet the Bible tells us, being reviled, he did not revile in return. If anyone deserved to be bitter and unforgiving, It was him. Yet it wasn't his excuse to be unloving or forgiving. It was his opportunity to show how much he loves. If Jesus, and I don't mean any humor in this at all. The humor was the earlier one. But if Jesus were to rewrite Taylor Swift song. All right, just chuckle right now. You get it out of the way. But I'm, if, if, ta- if Jesus were to rewrite Taylor Swift's song, it might sound something like this. One day, I'll leave the comforts of my big old city so you won't always have to be so mean. One day, I'll be small enough so you can kill me to wipe your sin and to make you clean. Now you're going to be so clean.
I want to give you some space to not just ponder this truth, but to apply it in your life. Who do you need to forgive? What faces came to mind as you heard these truths this morning? I want you to take this time, this space that we're going to allow for you, and however you want to do it, you can do it privately right where you're at, and it'd be totally effective. Some of you are going to need some encouragement. Some of you are going to want someone to just pray over you. We're going to have a handful of people on each side. without doing this work. If you can name the people, if you can just honestly say, I have not forgiven these people, you have taken a huge step. Confess it. Maybe that's all you can do this morning. And that'll be a great work. You need this. We need this. This church needs this. Our community needs this. At least do that. But if you have the courage to say, okay, I need to forgive these people. Lord, what's my next step based on what I've seen today? Is it a heart thing here I need to start with? Or do I need to go to a brother or sister? and love them enough to share with them how they've hurt me. It's not about their response. It's not whether they respond the way you want. It's about you being obedient to what Jesus has called us to do as Christians. Just one of those two things, maybe both of them. In your heart, you need to forgive someone. Secondly, What's my next step? You can do it there while the worship team practices. You can come up and share with someone. You don't have to share details. Maybe you're just saying, I'm struggling and I need help. I want God's strength to help me go to this person or help me forgive and have a brother or sister pray over there. They're they're here for you. We're here for you. But don't, don't leave until you've done a work that will transform you more than anything you might possibly do. Father God, thank you for the forgiveness you've offered in Jesus. It's the heart and soul of everything we are. We have nothing without that. So Lord, let our lives Reflect people who've been forgiven, even in our brokenness, so that we can freely offer it to the many people who have often hurt us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right where you're sitting.
come up if you need to. Uh, We'll close out this time in a few minutes. Thank you.